Welcome to the Abbot Loop Community Church Podcast. Enjoy this message from Mark Drake. Hey, hey. Good morning, everybody. Didn't they do a good job? Man, they, you know, they work for us on our behalf. Uh, could I get a, a strong man to set this up here for me? Yes, read. Ripped read. Yes, indeed. Thank hey, don't you. Laugh about that. Yeah, don't laugh about that. He's exhausted all of his strength raising a dozen, no, not a dozen, but you're working towards it, aren't you? Oh, oh, I, I just, I, I can't tell you how delighted Linda and I are, uh, to be here, to be back. Um, I, uh, I know, uh, Rick Benjamin did an excellent job last week, didn't he? That was excellent. And I'm sure he told you that there were about 35 churches that basically shared the same message and certainly needed in the body of Christ. Let me just throw out a little tidbit, uh, to help you understand the dilemma that we as Christians have when Jesus gave the great commission before he ascended or when he ascended back to the father, you remember he said, your job now is to go into all first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, then other other ends of the earth. Do you know that it took eight years after Pentecost for Philip to go to Samaria? No Christian Jew shared the gospel with anyone but genetic Jews. If we need to switch microphones, we can do that. You want to turn me off here? Okay. Only, Only Michael and my wife can do this. And that young guy right on the front row who helped me before the service. Okay. Are we on that? There we go. Can you hear me? Yeah, good. Okay. All right. But it, it took eight years. You remember the story about Peter going to Cornelius' house? You remember he had to have the uh, the vision three times so that he did not call unclean what God called clean, referring specifically to Gentiles? Right after that, there was a knock on the door, and it was a servant to take him to this Roman centurion house full of Gentiles. First thing Peter said, you know that it's not lawful for us to talk to you. What a bizarre thing when Jesus had told them, now 10 years later, Zach chapter 10, 10 years after Pentecost, the first Gentile church ever in history was in Antioch. Do you know when it happened? 13 years after Pentecost. Why? Because the Jews were locked in to a racist idea that God loved genetic Jews more than Gentiles. Even though the original promise to Abraham was, through your children I will bless all the nations of the earth. Not just through your children, you'll get to hoard all the blessing. We deal with the same issue of bias and racism. Pastor Rick did a good job of covering a great job, and it is important. And I don't want to get into all the protests or riots or however all that works out. All that stuff is way above my personal pay grade. But I am delighted to be able to go a step further today and share with you. Uh, we've been talking about the miracle and mystery of New Covenant grace. Now, last week or two weeks ago, We started out by saying that there was a great change 
in the in the biblical use of the word, the English word grace, from the old covenant to the new covenant. The English word grace appears about 240 times in the Old Testament. However, it is almost synonymous with the word mercy. Do just a little bit of study and you'll find that the word mercy and grace. The, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, King James. More modern translations, Noah found favor. He found mercy. Didn't do anything to earn it, except God gave it to him and he responded. The other people, it was announced to them, but they did not respond. However, in the New Testament, the word mercy and grace are radically different. The word grace, which the, the, the Greek transliteration into English is charis, literally means the divine influence upon the heart. In the New Covenant, we've been given a new what? A new heart. And, the definition goes on, it's reflection through the life and outward. So we come up with this understanding of new covenant grace. It's the spirit of Jesus working in you and then working through you. In and through. Come on, you can say that. In and through. Those of you that are home watching from your living room, this may feel a little bizarre, but you can say it too. Nobody will hear you. In and through. In and through. That's what the new covenant is all about. And I said, as we were closing last week, oh, by the way, let me show you, uh, give you just an idea of how we know that the meaning of grace in the new covenant is radically different than the meaning of grace in the old covenant. And you can just jot this down, look it up later. John 1, the gospel of John 1, Verse 17, now listen to these words. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came to be through Jesus Christ. Now look, if grace came to be, charis, by the way, that's the word there, charis. If charis came to be through the coming of Jesus, then that kind of charis was not available under the old covenant. The reason that there are so many laws and so many uh, literal instructions and don't eat this, but do eat that. It wasn't because all that stuff was physically bad for you. It was so God could give them daily reminders. You are not like other people. You belong to me. And, and the reason he had to give them daily reminders, surprise, is because they were not regenerated. This is why Hebrew says they apart from us and we apart from them can never be completed. Because God's desire was that for eternity, Old Testament believers would experience the same reality that we do. And that reality is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Regeneration. And I'll tell you, I, I'm still, after all these years of teaching this, literally around the world, I still struggle with my own terminology. I do not have a heart problem, and neither do you. If you are a believer, you have been given a brand new heart. You have a new heart. However we define that heart, the real us, we have a new heart. We don't have a spirit problem. 
Because the Bible says that in the new covenant, his spirit comes to live in whoever believes. And Paul said, if you do not have the spirit living in you, then you don't belong to Jesus. You've never been converted. If you've been converted, if you've been regenerated, if you've turned over the ownership of your life to Jesus, you have been given a new spirit. Now, this is why we have to be careful about praying some prayers that we find in the Old Testament. David said, renew in me a right spirit. We should not pray that. We have his. He don't need to be renewed. He's good. And he's living in us. Here's the dilemma. We have the same old mind. This is why over and over and over again, and we'll see a little bit of it today, that the scripture tells us that we grow in grace by renewing our knowledge of him. See, we act the way we act because we think the way we think. So we have to renew our minds. We have to renew our minds in the truth of the new covenant. Make me more aware that my heart is not what it used to be. I used to be dead in trespasses and sins. But the miraculous power of grace has made us alive. If this kind of charis transforming grace came through Jesus, then it was not available in the old covenant. They died in faith, Hebrew says, having never received the promise. The promise of what? The indwelling of God. But when they and we are re reunited, we will experience the fullness. We have a down payment now. We're on our way to the fullness of his kingdom. If you were with us two weeks ago or watched it online, you remember these words. Mercy is pardon, but grace is power. Mercy is forgiveness of our sin, but grace is the ever-increasing ability to say no to sin. Titus 2.11. Mercy is why God made us alive when we were dead in sin. Grace is how. Compassion is why a doctor should do what he does or she does. But the medicine is the power that they're smart enough, educated enough to prescribe so we get better. Does that make sense? Mercy is complete and eternal. God will never have more mercy than he has right now. He has everlasting mercy on you and I. But grace is the transforming work that is growing in us now. It does grow. It does ebb and flow based on our confidence in it and our belief in it. Mercy is our high priest who understands our weaknesses. Grace is our high priest living in us, empowering us day by day to grow in our ability to overcome our weaknesses. And it's important to understand that. It's important to understand that the translation of the word charis, from which we get the English word in the New Testament over a hundred times, grace, is also translated in several places by another English word. Charis is also translated in 1 Corinthians 12 as the word gift. I want you to think about the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. Those gifts are not natural abilities. They are supernatural 
powers. But they didn't come from us. Who did they come from? God. So it's God's power. But it's not just God's power in the universe. It's God's power living where? Inside of believers. Because the Spirit resides in us. So when the Spirit moves in us and then through us, manifesting a gift of the Spirit for the edification of of others, that's grace. That's charis. His power in us working through us. In and through. In and through. The first major Gentile church that the Apostle Paul planted, house churches, were a number of them in the area of Galatia. Now, just a little bit of history. The Galatian church was made up Virtually all were Gentiles. The Galatian church started off with a... Hang on just a minute. I'm getting old and weak. Now, as my grandfather said, I can run through a troop and jump over a wall. That's something David said in the, in the Psalms. More often than not, I've tripped up in the troop and ran right into the wall, but... I have a high priest who understands my weaknesses, and I'm grateful for that. Come on, how many will admit you get face planted in more walls than you want to? Yeah. It doesn't bother him a bit. Because <laughs> he already knows the end from the beginning, and he ain't done with us yet. Now, 15 years after Paul's conversion... And then ending up in Antioch, ministering to this brand new church, first church, made up almost entirely of Gentiles. Then sent out, he and Barnabas, to travel. They planted these house churches in the area of Galatia. And what they taught them was, everything that you learn from teachers about the Old Testament is a shadow, or are shadows that point us to the fulfillment in Christ. So to the Colossian church, which was almost entirely Gentile, he said, do not let people judge you when you don't keep the Jewish feasts. Do not let people judge you if you do not acknowledge the Sabbath. Because all of these things, though real for them, now are shadows that lead us to Christ. We celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles every time we give praise to Jesus for taking us out of bondage into the light of his kingdom. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Deliverance from Egypt into the promised land. We don't need to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We need to learn that every time we give thanks to him for setting us free and making us alive, we're celebrating the feast. We don't need a special day to set aside and then have a few hundred rules about what you can and can't do on that day. Because you and I have been given a 24-7 peace Sabbath in Him. Jesus said the Sabbath was fulfilled in Matthew 11, 28 when He said, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest And I will lead you into an easy and light life. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That is an eternal Sabbath. Not just one out of seven. But it's a lifestyle. Where the peace of God rules and reigns in our heart. The Sabbath of God 
rules and reigns in our heart. Now, we have a society that tends to look at Sunday as the end of the week rather than the first day. And so because of that, through many hundreds of years of tradition, we acknowledge Sunday as the day where most of God's people gather together. It's not because Sunday is holier than the other days. It's because most people don't have to work on Sunday. Those who do, I'm sorry, you can watch this a little bit later. But to understand the great transformation that took place in the new covenant. Transforming power came through Jesus to change us from the inside out. Now the problem was that after Paul founded these churches in Galatia and then moved on, some Jewish teachers from Jerusalem started following him around because they felt that he was not teaching all the truth. So they came into places like Galatia and said, okay, it's good that you have received Christ as your Messiah, but just remember, he's the Jewish Messiah, so you must convert. You know how serious they were when they came to these places where Paul had established churches with Gentiles? They actually convinced some of the men to circumcise themselves. Holy mackerel. I thought I'd get more response than that. At least some, oh. Man, I think I'm sometimes fairly persuasive as a speaker, but I don't think I could convince any of you guys to go, well, yeah, man, oh, these dudes were convincing. But you know what it showed? It showed just how hungry the Gentile Galatian hearts were to do whatever pleased God. The problem was they were being lied to. And the Apostle Paul was angry. By the way, especially for those of you who are in our uh, class on the Old and New Testaments through the covenant eye, New Covenant Eyes, Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, was the first letter that Paul wrote. He wrote it about 52 A.D. And by the way, the action that precipitated it was all the apostles finally came back over 15 years after Pentecost, finally came back to Jerusalem and did the shootout in Jerusalem. Over the Gentiles. Can the Gentiles be saved by faith in Christ alone? Or must they add the law to it? And they came out of that saying, no. No, they are saved the same way we are. And we're not saved by the law. We've never been saved by the law. We've been killed by the law. We've been brutalized by the law. But now we have the lawgiver living in us. And through his love and mercy, he guides us from the inside out. And this became a major revelation, which some rejected in the body of Christ, and they fought it the rest of their lives. We know that from the letters. But understand that Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians right after having this big shootout. And for a while, it got really rough. It did not go easy. But he wrote the letter to the Galatians right after that. Acts chapter 15, you can mark it in your Bible. This is where the letter to the Galatians was written, right after this meeting. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. Let's look up there, Galatians 4, 19 through 20. My dear children, for whom I am, now notice this word, again, in the pains of childbirth, until what? Until Christ is formed in you. How many think with me, that sounds kind of weird. I mean, Think about, think about what Paul is saying. 
There is some inexplicable miracle that was going on in those Gentile hearts where because of their faith in the message preached to them, the Holy Spirit began to form the image of Jesus inside of each believer. But something has caused that work to not only be hindered, but to start regressing. So Paul writes and he says, I'm like a woman laboring for you again. Because I want Christ to be formed in you. I don't want you to have to do what our forefathers had to do and live by the letter of the law. The letter kills, but the Spirit makes life. Why does the letter kill? Because you can never ever keep it perfectly. And if you can't keep it perfectly, and no human ever has except for Jesus, then it feeds you condemnation, fear, steals your confidence with God. So Paul writes and he says, I'm astonished. This is chapter 1 of Galatians. All this is from Galatians. Chapter 1, oh, by the way, let me finish. I'm sorry, I'm throwing you all around back there. Let me finish chapter 4. My dear children, for whom I have begun in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. Now think of this. If someone comes and teaches you that the truth of God is that by putting your faith in Jesus, a miracle of transformation begins in you. And if you will continue putting all of your hope in Christ living in you, Christ's nature will be formed in you. And as the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22, love, peace, joy, faithful, kindness, all those things, that's the nature of Jesus Passing through us, living through us. And then you decide, no, no. I want to get circumcised. No, no, I want to give up bacon. I'd rather be circumcised. But you know why they did it? They did it because they were hungry to please God. But they'd been lied to. So then he goes on. Now this is uh, Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace, the charis, the transforming power of Christ. And you are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Now in our, uh, in our foundry class. We talk about learning to ask good questions when we read Bible verses. We read a Bible verse and then we ask good questions. And that leads us to better understanding. So here's a question. How were they deserting the one who called them by the grace of Christ? How were they deserting him? They were looking to works they could do. To show God they were really serious so he would love them and accept them more. And Paul said, that's unbelief. You are not believing what God has said to you. In Christ, you are fully and completely acceptable. And God doesn't blind his eyes so that he only sees Jesus but doesn't see the real you. 
The Bible says nothing is hidden from his eyes and he still loves you with an everlasting love. Adam and Eve being naked did not surprise God. When Adam said, well, we ran and hid because we realized we were naked. God did not say, oh, you were what? None of that surprised him. That's why we have a high priest who understands our weaknesses. So Paul is saying, what, what, what has happened? I am astounded that you've so quickly deserted. How were they deserting Christ? They were putting their faith in something they could do that looked godly. They were judging others by what they did rather than who they believed in. You say, yeah, but these other Christians, they're not acting much like Christ. Well, give them time. I got a one and a half year old grandson. The other day he tried to ride his older sister's bike, fell off, and I whooped that boy. No, I didn't. You know what I said? Good try, buddy. Good try, buddy. Go for it. Go for it. Those skinned up knees, they'll heal. It's all right. Go for it. Why? Because he's a year and a half. Some of you are a year and a half in the Lord. It's all right. You need milk? That's good. That's fine. That's what you need. But all that we grow up in our faith in him, rather than making this so stinking complicated... The law is complicated. Receiving a miracle of the indwelling spirit who's already promised he is not going to stop working on you on the inside. That ain't complicated. Oh, my young grandchildren are going to hear me say ain't. Oh, man, I don't know about that. Here's another good question. Paul said you believed another gospel, which is really no good, go no, no real gospel at all. So here's an important question. What was the different gospel? That they had started to believe. That they had to try harder to be good enough for God. That they had to keep a checklist. Have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done this? Have I done that? Rather than you are in me. Now grow in me. Renew my mind. You've given me a new heart. I used to be hard hearted. But you gave me a new heart that's soft and pliable to you. And your voice. And your desires. You've put your spirit within me. You've made my dead, unresponsive spirit alive. And the Bible says, Paul writes and he says, our spirit is joined to the Lord's spirit and we become one spirit. But Lord, I still got the same old mind. I've learned some, I've changed the way I'm thinking about some things, but you're the infinite God. So the more I come to know you and your ways, the more the power of Keras will work in transforming me from the inside out. But that's a different gospel to believe that somehow I can do that by my good works. If I would only pray 30 minutes every day instead of 15. Right? And by the way, we're living in a time right now where all you got to do is just go on the internet. And you will hear some highly respected people saying, this election depends completely on how hard God's people pray. Really? Then we're in big trouble. Come on now. If this depends on our goodness, if this depends on our religious activities, we're in big trouble. But we serve a sovereign God 
who has said from beginning to end, I raise up one nation, I take down another. Should you function as a good citizen? Absolutely. No matter where you live. And we spend a very great portion of our time in countries that are not democratic by any stretch of the imagination. And we tell them the same thing. The Bible says, be a good citizen. Show respect to everyone. Do that. Why? Because that's the character and nature of Jesus. But we must not look at our own sanctification, our own growing in Christ-likeness as something that God is setting back, waiting for us to do. It will frustrate us to no end. Now, God will use that frustration to literally bring us to the end of ourselves. And I would encourage you, we've put all of our books on sale while we're here, Running on Empty, which is my latest book, although I've got another one coming out hopefully at Christmas. But the book that I'm really dealing with while I'm here this time is actually my first book called God's Brilliant Plan. Who does not have this book? I know many of you do. Who doesn't have it? Okay, that blonde, gray-haired, yes, in the, is that purple? Come here. No, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I meant your shirt. I mean... Although if you look around, you will see some friends with purple hair in this church. Yes, yes. And Sarah Jokola just gave me an amen. Thank you. Oh, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, she hasn't amen me the two times I've spoken yet. But boy, when I said purple hair, no, I'm kidding. I would dye mine purple, but I can't grow it. I don't want to do anything to threaten what's going on up there. <laughs> You know, you and I will always be faced with what Paul says in Galatians 3. We've looked in Galatians 4, Galatians 1, now Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And that, the Greek meaning for that word is exactly what it means, sorcery. Who has cast a spell on you? Who has boggled your mind to think the way you've begun to think? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing for you, from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Wow, now that's an important question. How did you start this journey with God? By some great effort of your own? No, actually, I gave up. Yes, you just hit the nail on the head. I gave up trying to be good enough for him, and I took him at his word. Come unto me, all you who are weary and worn out. Those who've been trying so hard. You know, he was talking to the Jews then. It's important to know who Bible verses are addressed to. He's talking to the Jews. He's saying, you all have been trying so hard, and most of you so sincerely, but you've missed the message all the way back to Abraham. Abraham came into a living relationship with me 430 years before the law was ever given. Well, how could he do that? Because Abraham believed I was telling the truth. And Paul says, when I came to you, I told you the truth. Christ in you will grow. He will not stop changing you. And that's what you must put your faith in. Who has bewitched you? To believe that you somehow do this by your own effort. And then I love the way the NIV translates the end of this. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And this is the dilemma that we all face. 
The transforming power comes from the Spirit. Growth and sanctification, cleansing, setting our mind and our heart apart unto the Lord is done by the work of the Spirit, not by human effort. The Spirit will lead you to do certain things which will benefit you and feed you and all that. And that's all good. It's all right. But it is by the work of the Spirit and not by human effort. Our work is to believe He is in us. He is in us. We're not asking Him to come down and get in us. We should be asking that He would increase our awareness of what's already going on inside of us. And Linda and I have to do this all the time. People have sometimes asked us, they said, uh, well, what is your, what is your prayer regime? And our response is, well, we breathe in and out. And our hearts are ever poised before the Lord. Yeah, are you there? <laughs> and prayer just becomes a natural daily thing throughout the day. Whether I'm here or whether I'm in Walmart, I, it shouldn't matter. Why not? Because he's in here. I'm not waiting for him to come down. He's in here. Now, you know, there are these mystical, I'll say, or metaphoric things in the Scripture about keep on being filled, keep on being filled. Yeah, absolutely. I can't exactly explain how one is, uh, the Spirit comes to live inside of them, and then they have to be filled again, filled again, except that's what the Scripture says. And I know that experience. But that's not trying to get God to come. That's trying to get my focus completely on Him and growing in my revelation of Him and His love for me. The Apostle Paul preached this everywhere he went. It wasn't just to the, it wasn't just to the Galatians that he preached that the sanctifying work of the Spirit is actually uh, disconnected by works of the law. If you feel like because you did not get up early, how many know when, when, if, if you normally get up at say 6.30 to get ready for your job in the morning, but you begin to feel convicted, quote unquote convicted, because somebody preached a message about early in the morning will I rise up and seek thee. Look, I want to tell you something about that verse of David. Early in the morning will I rise up and seek thee. All right? Here's an important truth. David was living in the Middle East. Early morning in the Middle East is about two in the afternoon in America. I believe in that word there. How else can we pray without ceasing unless we live in an ever-growing recognition and awareness that he's in us? Second, second philosophy, uh, Thessal, man, I took a drink and it's making everything slip. Second Thessalonians 2.13, listen to these words. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord. Because from the beginning you chose to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And then when we go back to 1 Thessalonians and the very ending of Paul's letter to them, chapter 5, beginning in verse 23, it says this, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Who sanctifies you through and through? God does. You don't do that by trying to do good stuff. When he does the sanctifying work, you're going to end up doing good stuff because that's what you want to do. It's in harmony with your new nature. 
It's in harmony with your new heart. So I just heard somebody teach on, well, you know, you're supposed to pray early every morning. So instead of setting my alarm for 6.30, I set it for a quarter to six so that I can get up, get a cup of coffee, and spend 30 minutes in prayer. How many know how you feel the first time you forget to do it? Come on. How many know how you feel the first time you hit the snooze alarm? Condemnation. What's wrong with me? I thought I loved God. Let me tell you, that may sound like your voice, but it's not. It is the voice of the accuser. And that's not going to make me any more holy. You say, well, shouldn't we pray? Absolutely, but it needs to be something that is so natural in your life that you do it at a moment's notice. Now, how does that happen? It happens as I renew my mind again and again. He's in me. He's in me. I'm not waiting for him to show up. He's in me. And by praying, I not only join with those who I love, but I'm fellowshipping him. Some of you may remember a few years ago, I taught a series on prayer in the new covenant and said that the word prayer was made up of two words, worship and supplication. We ought to spend our time worshiping. And then as we magnify the Lord in our own minds, then we ask for whatever we need. And then it goes on and it says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole, whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. At the coming of our Lord Jesus, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Important question. What will he do? What's the it? May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. He will do it. Not I will do it by my good effort. I will receive it as my focus and my faith is completely on him. And then when I want to just close with a Facebook post. Here's what it said. Don't fall for hyper grace. God wants a spotless bride who actually wants to be spotless. Now that may sound right. It's one problem. When you read that, does it give you any hope that God is going to do all the work to make his bride spotless? Or does that make it sound like you better get more serious? You better say, listen, as a pastor for the first 25 years of my adult life, I cannot tell you how many times I quoted Ephesians 5 about a bride without spot or blemish and then said to my congregation, you are the bride of Christ. You better straighten up. You better look in the spiritual mirror and see the spots that are on your life. And you better get rid of those things or you're not going to be part of the bride when he comes back. Well, this is an interesting truth because there's only one place in the New Testament, actually one place in the whole Bible, where it talks about God's bride being without spot or blemish. And here it is, surprisingly enough, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. And we start off talking about marriage, but immediately Paul shifts gears and stops talking about marriage marriage exclusively and begins to talk about a much bigger revelation. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Who makes her holy? Christ. Who cleanses her by the washing of the water through the word? Christ. Who was going to present himself, uh, her to himself as a radiant church without stain, spot, or wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless? Who does that? I don't do that. I don't look in the mirror and grit my toe. I have. 
only to find that I always fell short and it never worked. And then I gritted my teeth harder, which is, I've had a lot of dental work done, but the, the, those, those suckers grind down, you know? But, but listen, the, I, I, I appreciate sincerity. I always appreciate sincerity, but we can be sincerely wrong. And this idea of telling people, you better get yourself spotless. Or you're not going to be a part of that glorious. What? Only he can do this. Only he can do this. Only he can do this. And by the way, he is. He is right now inside of you. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand up with me. And I want you to begin to say, pray, Philippians 1, 6. And this is what it says. And I am certain that God, who began this good work within you, within you, within you. See that? Within you. He will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. This was Paul's everlasting hope. He started this. He will finish it. My work, believe he tells the truth. Keep renewing my mind on what the Bible really says. What it really says. God's only coming back for a spotless bride who really wants to be spotless. I don't know any Christian anywhere that in their heart of hearts doesn't want to be what God wants them to be. I know a lot that seem like they've given up because of frustration and the shame and pain of trying harder, harder, harder and putting their faith in their own effort. I know what that feels like. I've been there. Fathers, we stand here before you. We just want to say what Paul said. I believe you're going to finish what you're saying. I believe you tell the truth. How many believe he tells the truth? Father, I believe you tell the truth. I believe that you are working in me, doing me what I we're doing in me what I cannot possibly do for myself. I believe that. And when I miss the mark by trusting in myself, I will be honest enough to say I've missed the mark. You know it already. But you beckon me to come to you, to run to you, to draw near to you for the transforming and renewing of our minds. And we're going to have some of our friends come up here. And uh, wait up here at the front. And I would like for all of you just to bow your head just for a moment. This is a very individual moment here. If you've never turned the ownership of your life over to Jesus, there's no better time to do that but now. Now would be the perfect time for you to give the ownership of your life over to him. Because he wants to come live in you. Take the weight off your shoulder and begin to live his life through you. By surrendering the ownership of your life over to him, a miracle will begin. So I want you to bow your heads, please, everybody, and just wait here for a moment as we give people an opportunity to make a decision. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you soon.